Love the nouns, love the pronouns, impersonal and personal. Love the words from ELFM. So, you're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. And today we're talking to a writer, a poet, a broadcaster and Britain's first ever professor of radio, Sean Street. Hello, Sean. Hello, Peter. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's great to have you here. And yes, just before we were... Uh, we came on air, we were talking about our respective titles, or you were admiring a director of words, which is... Oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> but professor of radio is something, and we're going to hear about about how that came about. I mean, it's but you, it seems to me your whole uh, writing life or your whole working life or really, career has been around sound and words. So we're going to be... It's going to be fascinating. Really, really glad you're with us, Sean. So, um, yeah... First of all, how do, how do you describe yourself? Say you're at a party somewhere, and uh, perhaps with you know people, not with people in our in our world, perhaps, but mm. uh, people from other worlds, and they say, "What do you do?" I suppose uh, I, I would say that uh, I mean I've worked in radio for about fifty plus years. So um, I work in I would say I work in radio. I work in sound, and I'm also an academic in sound, I'm largely because I think if you say you're an academic, people sort of understand what you mean. Uh, they may not understand necessarily what you do, but the title has a meaning. Uh, and uh, I have worked in academia for 24 years, and uh, a lot of my writing about sound has come from that. And I suppose being in academia has given me the opportunity to to explore and reflect on sound, which is, as you say, a sort of passion of mine, while still actually making it. I'm still lucky enough to be involved in a freelance capacity to make radio from time to time. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that's a garbled answer, but it's somewhere around some, a combination of all those things, really. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, you've got a new a new, a new book out, a book of, uh, well, it, 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 tell us about uh, The Sound of a Room. Well, The Sound of a Room, which, yeah, which came out from Routledge just a year ago, actually, just over a year ago, um, is, uh, I've been writing about books, books about sound for about 10 years, I suppose. And... Uh, it increasingly struck me that all the things I've been writing about, the voice, music, uh, memory, all these things, in the end it comes down to a place. Uh, everything happens in a place. We are in a place always. And that all the sounds that I hear, that I make, that I write about, happen somewhere in a place a room and when i say room i mean really not just a room with four walls but a field of consciousness and i became more and more interested in that idea and the acoustics of space and how those things actually affect our mood affect the sound of us affect the sounds that we're absorbing uh 
and so uh, that that that's really was the, the sort of kind of thinking behind the sound of a room. And I was lucky enough to to invite a lot of people who are sound practitioners to reflect on that from their point of view as well. So uh, there are quite a lot of radio producers and sound producers, podcasters, and so forth who've who've uh, thought about that idea and uh, reflected on the sounds in which they record. And I think it's very important because at the at the top and bottom of everything is listening. Uh, that uh, you as a broadcaster and as a poet, I think those are the two of the, the common things between us all really are seeing and listening and uh, not just looking but seeing and not just hearing but listening and uh, actively. Those are active things they're not passive and uh, that the sound of a room is where we do that mm. seeing and listening i think your your link there that you've drawn between seeing and listening is fascinating one we we run a lot of courses for young people uh and and adults in writing for radio and i always say that it's the most uh, radio is the most visual medium in the mm. sense that we are creating pictures in people's minds through through words um, and th and sound. I think it's fascinating. It's not what people what automatically comes to mind when you think of radio. But to go back to your poetry, and I'm going to ask you to to read some poems from your latest co uh, collection, which is called "The Sound Recordist." So, and you've and and when I've looked back, when I look at your website and look at what you've done, a lot of your your the your poetry relates to sound it seems to me tell us about the sound recordist your new poetry collection well yes i mean you're you're right a, a, a lot of what i've written over the years uh, relates to sound i suppose you know poetry is sound isn't it it's we, we can't as poets not uh, write about sound write about it make sound but we are making sound when we make poems mm. uh, but the sound recordist is in a sense a sort of essence that's been pulled together in my thinking uh, out of some of the prose books that I've written about sound. And I, I suppose it, it's really uh, quite a concentrated sequence of poems, all of which do relate to to sound. And and you're right about the difference of uh, listening and and seeing because uh, light and sound are, are very much related we, we absorb the world through a combination of senses and uh, so you can't really isolate one from another and um, but the the ability for sound to trigger memory I think is well mm. it's a no-brainer really isn't it it's mm. something that we're, we're, we're becoming in, thank goodness increasingly conscious of uh, in in how uh, sound aids memory and the sound of a song can trigger something and uh, we can mm. use that uh, as memory perhaps starts to fade mm. uh, sound is a, is a wonderful trigger for, for memory and, and I think there's a lot of uh, links between memory and sound in the sound recorders too uh, I, I was doing some work at the British Library some some months ago before the lockdown and we were playing sounds uh, and one of the sounds 
that that we played was the sound of um, a, a, a dial-up modem. Uh, remember those? I mean, that, mm. that, it seems <laughs> yes. another world, and yet you know that that, that curious chirruping sound, uh, and it suddenly was a sound that people in the room had completely forgotten, and yet everybody knew it, and it it took them back to a certain time, you know. So everyday sounds can trigger things. So I think there's a lot about that in there. And there's also uh, a returning theme of the human voice, mm. which, of course, is the ultimate sound, the ultimate mm. music, the, the music of vernacular poetry, the vernacular mm. speech. Um, uh, and the, the, it, so the book also celebrates the human voice and draws attention, I think, to some of the places in which the human voice is uh, something that triggers prejudice in people. Mm. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, I think there's th those are the main themes of, of that, the sound recordist. That's an interesting idea. Would you, would you elaborate on that, the, the idea of prejudice and, and the human voice? Well, yes. Uh, I mean, you know, we think about, uh, at its ultimate, racism. We think about uh, how we judge people by the way they look, mm. but I would I would say that we also judge people by the way they sound. Mm. Um, uh, we make a judgment very quickly. I mean, one of the things that I've been exploring in in the writing that I've been doing since the sound recordist, and, and hopefully that will appear at some point, mm. has been the fact that we immediately identify ourselves as a as a native or not of an area mm. um, by, by the way we sound uh, before we've even seen one another. I think we did that <laughs> as soon as we spoke to one another on, on, on the line. Um, you're not from around here, are you? <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's, it's not prejudice, but it's an identification and mm. it's an interesting one. Um, and I think at its worst it can it can be a kind of prejudice. My mo I come from an Irish background, and my mother had a strong Irish accent. And um, I remember all my life listening to her accent. Now, I couldn't hear it when I was in the room with her, but I could hear it when I was on the telephone to her uh -huh. because of that kind of objectivity, which is a strange thing. But I was also very conscious. She, I, w I was brought up in, in southern England, uh, and she was she'd come over from Ireland and I was very conscious of the fact that she was self-conscious about her dialect and I th and when I did hear it when I became aware of it I loved it I found it beautiful mm. and yet she tried to disguise it mm. and I felt that was terrible really and there's a poem in the sound recordist about that and about her yeah. uh, I moved around a lot when I was at school and and you know yeah. Children are merciless, aren't they, when they hear a different voice or, a di or they identify a difference. And um, so I became aware of changes in dialect and how I identified myself as an outsider by the fact that I didn't sound the same as everybody else. And, and I think back to my mother and think, gosh, she had a whole life of that, really. Yes. Well, it'd be lovely to hear that poem, actually, if you've got it handy. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I I think that's a fascinating idea, and I think it, you know the idea of us instantly, well, judging actually, making a judgment about people and where they come from, uh, you know, from from the sound of their voice and the 
the accent that they have I think particularly I mean so there's race but also class I think we are you know we are very quick in this country to judge people in terms of how they speak and Absolutely. Uh, so on and uh, yeah perhaps that'd be interesting to do a comparison with other countries I think in terms of that but I think we're particularly obsessed with that as we are with class historically and still but yeah let's let's hear a poem Sean okay well let, let, let me read that poem which is called who are you anyway she'd never realized till then rooms were so small so separate she hadn't heard the rain falling till someone asked and she answered and her accent filled place blamed her for being there a vacuum fell like a stone round her neck a sound that broke out whenever she spoke. It was then that she noticed the rain, just because it was all there was, all the stairs with judgment in them, never the same after that day. I remember she would make up a voice, thinking it would save her. I recall the anger in me that it was sound no one believed, least of all her, and that she thought might be better than who she was, and how it must have hurt for her the counterfeit they all saw through, denial of identity, of all that she'd been born with, the pain of being in a room, separate, with no door, no floor. So mm. that idea of immediately being separated by the room falling silent, uh, eyes turning because they've heard something that doesn't ring with their expectation. I think a lot of us must go through that in some way or another. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, we, we have at, uh, at East Leeds FM, Chapel FM, we have so many people through the door who uh, we interview, we, 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 uh, we, we teach around radio. But everybody, I would say, <laughs> says, I, I hate the sound of my own voice, you know. Yeah, uh, and it's such a such an interesting one that, and I, I I love it when people come in and they're very they don't want to do an interview or they're a bit shy about it. And after it afterwards they go, ah, which that was all right actually. Yeah, and I and it's something about becoming becoming accommodating one's own voice, accommodating one's own speech. Sean, that was great. I very much enjoyed that poem uh, from the sound recordist. Um, so let's just track back. We're going to hear a bit. We're going to hear two pieces of music you've chosen. We'll have the first one in a little while. But first of all, tracking back, you've talked a little about your 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 past and your your, your Irish heritage. But um, yeah, tell us about your first introduction to sound and your your first sort of recognition of the of the power of sound. I'm thinking actually. I'm, I'm. I'm. This is a slight prompt because I've read <laughs> about the the Apollo 13 experience with Radio Two. I'd love to hear more about that. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that was that was extraordinary, really. Uh, I started my life as an actor. Um, uh, I, I was in the professional theatre for a number of years before I came into radio. But I came into radio uh, really very early on um, in my. In life. I didn't last that long in the theatre, uh, but uh, I. Um, Actually, the very first time I, I encountered radio and the power of sound and the link between sound and pictures was uh, during a year in Paris. I lived in Paris for a year and I did some work at the national radio station, which is now called Radio France, but was then called ORTF. And we were making a series of English language programs, drama documentaries about works of art in the Louvre Museum. Um, and uh, I mean, I remember vividly things like 
uh, Jericho's were after the Medusa and things mm. like that. You know, obviously wonderful links between sound and pictures there. And these were shipped to public radio in, in the States and, and played there, broadcast there. And so that was the first connection. And then uh, uh, fast forward to about 1970, well, exactly 1970, I was working in a, a play in the West End in London called Conduct and Becoming. And um, I uh, went in to sit in on a, a Radio 2 programme called Night Ride. And in those days, radio didn't go 24 hours. National radio didn't go 24 hours. It closed down at 2 a.m. And Night Ride was was, uh, was one of those programmes. And uh, the presenter said, come in and sit in on the programme and uh, we'll talk um, uh, for an hour or so. And it turned out to be, I think it was the 16th of April 1970, which was one of the nights when the Apollo disaster, the, you know, Apollo 13 was was in trouble and there's been a movie about it since and all that mm. drama was happening and I didn't know that when I went in and I went into the studio and the, the presenter met me in the foyer broadcasting house and he said um, uh, there's been a slight change of plan have you heard the news well I hadn't because it, it was a Wednesday and I'd been in matinee and then evening performance and I hadn't heard what was going on he said well Apollo 13 it's really uh, cooking up there and uh, we're going to stay on the air all night he said you don't have to stay all night but we're going to stay on the air all night till 6 a.m. as a st sustaining source for the news that's coming in. So instead of going home at, uh, at 2 a.m. and being a, a rather dubious gift to the theatre for, <laughs> for the rest of my life, I sat there until 6 a.m. listening to this unfolding real-life drama going in, stu you know, things coming in from Houston and mm. news reports and Arthur Garrett in the space studio and all that stuff happening and I was sitting there in this warm cocoon of studio light and uh, I just fell out into a Portland place at 6am and thought I've got to do this how do I do this and uh, it was around that time that BBC local radio was starting to open up its second phase and uh, I I got a job at Radio Solent in Southampton, and uh, that was it. Um, uh, and I stayed in radio ever since, really. But it was uh, you you could sort of say that it was an overnight change mm. of career because yes. it all happened between twelve midnight and six a.m. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, um, we're going to hear in a little while uh, uh, m more about your your kind of radio sound journey. Uh, but first of all, let's hear a piece of music that you've chosen. And uh, you, you, I know that you you work with with composers, mm. um, and um, and they set your words. So that's a fascinating th uh, sort of line of inquiry, anyway. But yeah, tell us about this piece you you've you've chosen by uh, Cecilia McDowell. Yeah, well, Cecilia and I have have worked together for some years, um, and uh, it's a funny thing about. Uh, the the link between writers and and composers uh, when it works it really works and uh, when it doesn't you know you it's a kind of psychic link that 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 works and for us it that communication does work it, that collaboration is a kind of wavelength thing and uh, we so we've worked together for a number of years um, and on a number of projects. Uh, the one we've got coming up is uh, a commission from Glasgow School of Art Choir. Um, and they're almost all based on 
actual events, facts. They, their starting point is always documentary. And uh, the, 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 the work we're doing for, for Glasgow School of Art is about the uh, American Civil War nurse, uh, Clara Barton. And mm -hmm. Clara Barton was a kind of Florence Nightingale of the, of the American Civil War, a remarkable woman. And so we, we tell stories about those people. We did one about um, a, a piece that was commissioned by the BBC called Photo 51 about uh, Rosalind Franklin, who was the woman who took the photograph that unlocked uh, the, the understanding of DNA. Mm. Uh, so they sometimes quite uh, unusual themes. And, and the piece you're very kindly going to play is called Standing As I Do Before God, which was written uh, to commemorate the First World War nurse Edith Cavell uh, who was executed by the Germans in the First World War uh, for treason? Mm -hmm. And Cavell, uh, if you if you if you know the area around uh, St Martin in the Fields and outside mm -hmm. the National Portrait Gallery, yep. there's a statue of Cavell there. Um, uh, she uh, was executed for aiding Allied soldiers. But the fact about the, the important thing about Cavell was that she she was she didn't discriminate between between people. They were all just people, whether they were German, whether they were uh, English, whatever. And uh, she said, I, uh, I, 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 must, I must not f feel hatred for anyone. And so this piece is a meditation on, on her words, uh, but woven into uh, a poem by me. Uh, so, so it's Cavell and Street, if you like. Um, that's that's at the root of this piece, but it's in, I I chose it really because it's sort of typical of the way Cecilia and I have worked over the years.
So that was a piece um, by Cecilia McDowell called Standing As I Do Before God with um, with words by Sean Street, the poet and uh, broadcaster and writer uh, who we're interviewing today. We're talking to on Love the Words. So, Sean, yeah, you've you've told us a bit about how you kind of fell in love with sound and radio through that that overnight experience at Radio 2 and listening to the unfolding events of Apollo 13. Tell us what happened next in terms of you're, you, you're down at Radio Solent. How, how does that lead you on to, yeah, the, the first MA in radio? Tell us about that. Yeah, well, that's a fairly circumlocuitous journey, actually. Um, I, I spent about six years uh, at Radio Solent and then I actually left the BBC. I went into teaching uh, and I taught at the Arts Educational School in Tring um, for a number of years, uh, drama and poetry, uh, poetry studies. And then I went back into radio, into commercial radio, uh, and from there I went into uh, a freelance life, which really, I suppose, I occupied me for the next few years, and which is crucial because I started making uh, radio features uh, for... In those days, commercial radio was very different to what it is now. There was a lot of speech content, and I was making features for radio for LBC mm. and um, documentary features, and uh, it was that was actually wonderful because LBC said, uh, "We don't mind. You just just you know make what you like. Uh, we have a, a remit to supply meaningful speech, mm. uh, so we don't care as long as it's broadcastable." which was just fantastic. I never had such freedom again. And so I was I, I had an opportunity to meet and make radio programs with poets rather rather like your your program in a way. Mm. And um and I met some some poets who were seminal in my life at that time, Fleur Radcock, uh David Gascoigne, uh Charles Tomlinson, uh, uh Jeremy Hooker, uh, People like that, and and these pe a lot of these people became lifelong friends. Uh, so that was very important to me, and and I started making radio documentaries for for BBC Radio Four as well and Radio Three, um, and uh, that's that was my life. I was a bit of a gypsy. I was doing all uh, I was doing radio work for whoever would pay me some money to do it. Uh, but it was always about it was that point where poetry sound history and place come together. I mm. love making location-based documentaries where, where you can actually hear the place around you. And I think people respond to place when they're being interviewed as well, if mm. they're in a special place that's got a significance to them, a poignancy about them, a meaning to them. So I love that. And it comes back to the sound of a room, doesn't it, really? Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, and then... Uh, one day somebody at, at Bournemouth University contacted me and uh, said, would you come in and do some seminars about what you do? Just talk about what you do. And I started doing that and I loved that. I'd been teaching, of course, before, so I, I, did, I do enjoy teaching. And that gradually grew and I suppose I, I became slowly institutionalized over the years and developed more and more radio. I think it was one of those key moments that happened was uh, in the 90s when media was changing a lot and they decided they were going to not teach radio anymore and uh, that nobody wanted radio, that it was all going to be done 
uh, it was all going to be gaming, it was going to be uh, television, it was going to be computers, and uh, that radio was dying, it was dead, and so forth. It, the sound medium of, of radio was dying. And I, I knew that wasn't going to happen. I, I knew, that I didn't know there were going to be podcasts, because that term hadn't been invented then, but I could see that the great thing about sound broadcasting is that it constantly evolves, it finds new ways. We're, as long as we're telling stories, we need to make sound. Mm -hmm. And so I, rather than say, okay, we're not going to do radio anymore, I, I, I upped the ante and started a, a postgraduate course in, in radio, which again had the kind of freedom about it because it was more and more about impressionistic radio, about sound, uh, uh, and the kind of sound that I think a lot of uh, sound practitioners now enjoy, uh, soundscapes, sound design, that kind of thing, moving outside of just the, the, the parameters of traditional radio and, uh, and, uh, mm. and exper using it as a medium for experimentation. And um, I was very proud of that, and out of that came the sort of research that I've continued to do since then into sound aesthetics, sound poetics, um, and, uh, and, and ultimately the professorship in, in radio. So that's, that's the journey, really. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, the last laugh is on people <laughs> who, who were saying at that time, uh, you know, sound is, is, is not the future. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, it does, it does its, uh, how does it seem to you in terms of just over the last 18 months with the pandemic? For me, it seems, it, it, you know, you, I see people wandering about, young people in the park, just lost in their headphones, and I don't think they're just listening to music. No, no. I mean, I, you know, we, we've, we're still uh, working with a word called radio, which is in a way uh, a word that limits us in our imagination because it's audio, isn't it now? It, uh, but but what I love about the word radio is that right from well earliest days from when it stopped well in the earliest days it was called wireless of course which has become something else it's a very contemporary word yeah. um, but it was wireless when when Reith was uh, was starting the BBC mm. uh, but radio is something you listen to but it's also or traditionally was an object through which you listen to radio so it was both an object. Uh, and and a medium uh, and that's no longer the case we we consume so-called radio audio whatever through so many different means now through our phones through our computers through our televisions whatever um, that we we actually the the actual object of a radio is 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 one of the fewer items we use to consume radio now but it's still at its essence telling stories it, creating images in the imagination uh, which is the link between poetry isn't it uh, it's back to this thing of uh, uh, sound listening and seeing being active participatory acts yeah. they are not passive acts they are we, we help create a radio program by listening to it because we create the scenery we create the pictures um, and mm. th the same is true of a poem Somebody uh, came up to me once after a, a talk and said, you don't look like that on the radio. <laughs> you know, and, and I thought, I know, I know exactly what you mean, you know, because uh, I've kind of killed the illusion. It's like when I first heard uh, 
well, first the first adaptation I was aware of Lord of the Rings. It was the radio adaptation, and mm. I, I was almost terrified to see the films. I think actually, Ian McKellen was a wonderful uh, mm. Gandalf, but I was I was almost worried about seeing that because. I knew what Gandalf looked like because I'd read Tolkien mm. and I'd heard him on the radio yeah. and that was how he looked. So you you kind of want to protect that image, don't you? Yeah. Um when you when you when you see something and it can be a letdown. Uh, not mm. always. Often it can be right as as the casting director gets it right, but mm. but yeah, it's a risk, but but in sound you create the pictures. <laughs> Absolutely, and 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 I, I I sometimes say to you know young people we're working with that uh, you know I, I was listening. Well, this is a true story. I was listening to uh, you know a Radio Four play. I think I just came in the middle of it. I was doing something else, and there a murder had just been committed in this uh, in this radio drama, and um, somebody was just going in and discovering the murder. And of course, I couldn't. You know, it wasn't television. We weren't being shown that, and all the sound. I think there was a sort of dripping sound, and then just a few sort of almost vocalizations from the character who walks into this room and it was the most terrifying thing i've ever seen in my life yeah um and you know <laughs> been, yeah. so but there you, we, cre you created that that, exactly. that picture you yeah. know um yeah. it's a it's a partnership isn't it uh yeah. between the maker and the listener and uh, yeah. I, re I remember i mean i went to i went to college with uh, with carol boyd who plays linda snell in the arches mm. and uh, some years ago uh there was an idea where where they toured the archers on stage. They did a, created a stage show for the archers, and uh, when she came to to my town, I went back stage afterwards and we had a drink together and reminisced a bit. And uh, we, Carol's not at all like Linda Snell, but but she, uh, she, in the middle of our conversation at the bar, this woman came up to us and, and she ignored me, but she went up to Carol and said, "Hello, Linda." <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Linda, and Carol. Carol went into Linda mode. Said, "Hello, dear," and um, she said, "And this, she, this woman had a kind of glazed look on her face." And she said, "You are Linda, you are Linda, but you don't look like that." Mm -hmm. And then just walked away. And you, she said, "Well, that that's extraordinary, isn't it?" Because she had to make contact with the character because she knew that character so intimately, and yet she wanted to preserve her picture mm. of Linda Snell, her imaginative picture. She didn't want that picture corrupted by the reality of the actress who was playing Linda. Mm. And I think that's a very interesting thing, you know. Absolutely. Well, t read us another poem, if you would, Sean, either from the sound recordist or from another of your Right, well, this is, a, this is a poem called A Trick of the Light, which I in a way is, is this connection between seeing and and hearing and memory, those three things, that tripartite thing, uh, that sometimes a very, very uh, inconsequential thing that you see can trigger something that opens up a memory and it can open up a sound. And uh, so I often find myself writing poems that start off being about sound, but actually, uh, have connections with light as well in them. Mm. And A Trick of the Light is about that. And this is, um, this comes from, uh, this was actually written during the first lockdown, I think. And I could hear someone playing uh, uh, a, 
a brown-eyed girl by Van Morrison outside. Mm. He had his guitar. It was a nice day, and the, he was playing on a, singing somewhere up the road. I couldn't didn't know where it was, and it immediately took me back to uh, a time I was touring in the theatre in Northern Ireland um, uh, w when that record first came out, and we were in Belfast, mm. and it just and that is, which is strange because I've heard that song thousands of times but I've never that's never that memory has never been triggered but that moment in the garden hearing that song coming drifting across unexpectedly mm. opened up this kind of pathway trick of the light someone somewhere across suburbia is singing an old Van Morrison tune whenever rain comes a dull bulb goes on, replanting these notes in particular time. A place to be when the place is elsewhere. A trick of light and sound, putting me back in the drizzle, just along there from Queens, where we used to walk. It's what music does. I turn for home as the faint rain comes on. Belfast rain, and the girl with the brown eyes from Straban calls for a scarf she's left behind. We pause on the step, and I let her go. And the boy stops singing, the switch goes off, and a woman says, when are you coming home? Someone laughs, or perhaps it's a cry. Hard to remember with no light, no song. Mmm, lovely stuff, and full of pictures, actually, <laughs> as well as sound. Yeah, lovely stuff, Sean. Well, we're listening to Sean Street talk about uh, poetry, sound, broadcasting. Uh, yeah, and uh, it's fascinating. So, um, Sean, just we don't have endless time, unfortunately, but um, it would be lovely to hear about Charles Parker Day because that's something at Chapel FM that we we have we're we're, we're sort of remotely part of through Tony Macaluso, our director, who mm. um, who is who's been I think went to the last Charles Parker Day. Um, but so tell us about that. Well, Charles Parker Day, which I'm delighted to say has become an annual fixture now on the conference schedule, started when I was full time at Bournemouth University, uh, and I. Parker's work, the radio ballads, his work with Ewan McCall and so on, uh, was very much a part of my radio education. Uh, it's one of the first opportunities I ever realised that you could take a microphone out of a studio, as Parker did for the first time, portable equipment enabling Parker to go on location and record people not in a studio, but to be spontaneous, to pick up the voices in the places. Uh, the Ballad of John Axon was the first one, and mm. uh, Singing the Fishing is probably the most famous of them. Uh, and not to have narrators, not to have a, a narrator, but to have uh, uh, music specially composed that commented on the sound. And I, I, I was very much influenced by Charles Parker, as I have been with lots of radio producers who are also uh, oral historians, uh, I think of Studs Terkel, yeah, uh, yeah. a huge uh, force in that field, and and people like George Ewart Evans, uh, who who used the tape recorder to record voices, and it's the grain of the voice, the the quality of the language, 
the, the, the words, the vocabulary. You know, one of my favorite poets is John Clare, mm. and it's it's largely that kind of vernacular language, the, the words that you would never hear uh, outside of perhaps a certain area, but those words become universal because they become the exact way of saying a thing, you know. Uh, railways run through your spine like Blackpool runs through rock, was one of the lines of a railwayman in, in the first radio ballad. That's such an exact description, such an exact poetic way of saying something that you think, yeah, there's no other way of saying it. And I, so I, I love Charles Parker anyway. And then when I was in Bournemouth, I discovered that, believe it or not, Charles Parker was born in Bournemouth. And uh, when you're looking for funding as an academic, you always look for a, a, a connection <laughs> to, yeah. to interest somebody. And I, uh, that seemed to me an absolute uh, must. You know, we, we should do Charles Parker Day because this is where he was born. I mean, the fact he made his programs largely in Birmingham was another matter. But, you know, um, we we did. And so that's how it started. And but what I really wanted when I started it was for it to, to move around, to go to different places, to different universities, different academic institutions where Parker's work would be respected and, and, and celebrated. And that's what's happened. Uh, and then uh, a few years afterwards, um, I handed it over to Andy Cartwright at, Sunderland University and Andy's continued that idea of of touring it different places uh, and uh, I think it was um, 2019 2019 that was the 10th anniversary of Charles Parker Day we came back to Bournemouth and we did it in Bournemouth for, for, the, for the 10th anniversary uh, but it but it, it you know it's peripatetic it moves around mm. and uh, it is but it's not just about Parker it's about that whole idea of celebrating the the radio feature the oral tradition uh the voice the human voice uh speaking you know because the human voice when it's expressing extremes of emotion language becomes incandescent it, it becomes transcendent and the microphone can capture that if it if it's allowed to uh, too often Inevitably, because it's the way we, we consume these days, uh, it's the 20-second soundbite that we hear on the news, and there isn't time for the pause, for the hesitation, for the, for, the, for the moment when you can hear the sob in the voice, or the laugh, or the smile. These things have to be cut because there isn't time for them. And it's often in the pauses where the real emotion, the real meaning of what we say is, is heard. And uh, that's what I love about that whole tradition of 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 radio and sound expressing and allowing the human voice to express itself through everything beyond not just words but through silences pauses hesitations and so on well that's a a, um, a lovely way of of, of putting that and uh, i wish uh, we'd known about you during uh, writing on air I think 2019. So, what Radio Nair is a, f a festival of, of of radio on the, uh, the literature on the radio that mm. we uh, that we do at Chapel FM, and the the theme the other year was voice. Right. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and that's with all the programmes, <laughs> about 30 of them are on are online on our archive. But uh, been great, great to have had you. Part. But yeah, lovely to lovely to hear that kind of rhapsody on a 
on a theme of the human voice. Well, I think um, it's something that is expressed in in the sound recorders. There is a poem about George Ewart Briggs and George Ewart Evans in the uh, in the sound recordist and. Uh, uh, it, it's it's that celebration as I say we were talking about the, the prejudice that voice can have but there is that positive side that celebration of as, uh, of, of the, the, the you know the grain of sound of the voice which which I think is is to be celebrated and is what is what makes us who we are it's it's at the root of identity absolutely well let's hear one last poem from the collection perhaps that one uh, I've got a few uh books by um George Ewood Evans on my shelf and to my shame I haven't actually uh, I haven't I haven't read them yet <laughs> but I but I, he's a very famous name right well this, this is a poem called real to real that's so that the two spellings of real real as in r-e-a-l to real r-e-l-l-e mm. r-e-l-l sorry real to real and it, it's this is an archaic medium of course because it, it relates back to the the kind of uh, recording medium that I was using when I was uh, I was working first in radio, which is reel-to-reel tape machines, which mm, we don't have now. And the idea that a reel of tape uh, contains a voice inside it, uh, almost like the pages of a book, mm. and that it's only unspooled as the tape goes through the machine. That's the kind of idea mm. behind this this poem. But but Ewart Evans did most of his work in a very localised area around the village of Blacksall in, in Suffolk. And, and it's, that's another thing, you know, it's the localness of, of poetry sometimes and the localness that becomes universal. John Clare, universal, and yet such a, uh, a circumscribed area. Hardy uh, made Wessex universal. Those characters are at once extremely local and I knew you know I, I was lucky for a period of my life where I could walk out into hardy country and stand on the tumulus that Angel Clare stood on when he looked down into the Vale of the Little Dairies mm. uh, and, and actually see these places but it wouldn't matter if I was in Japan or America I would still identify with the kind of Greek tragedies that were going on in, in Hardy's writing mm. so it's the local becoming universal and uh, George Ewart Evans celebrates the the voice, the sound of the voice, the stories of the voice that is, is just, thank God for those people because those voices become homogenized and disappear. Yeah. Um, and uh, Real to Real was about uh, uh, a man called Sam Friend uh, in Blacksall. And it, it, it has the uh, uh, epigram of um, it were a whole fierce wind it took nine tailors to hold the needle up which is just mm. a wonderful mm. use of language just yeah. to express gale force wind yeah uh, but it could only you know it it's it, if you just say it was a very windy night <laughs> yeah. it doesn't have the same doesn't, feel doesn't so this is real to real the way you said it the words fell like notes on a stave eased from a tape turning cog grain through a harvester it was as though your saying it had no more than slept to be kissed awake by playback a hundred years on all this time language quietly singing to itself the sound of its thought 
awaiting its second speaking, rising from dark, silent, spooling pages in new light, its proper nouns and verbs exact after all this time. Lovely. The idea that, you know, they, they knew how to say it. Yes. These people understood the right way to say it, and we've not really improved on that. Absolutely. And I loved the, what you said about the grain of the voice. My, my, my son is a, um, he's 19, he's a folk musician. He's a, a, a folk fiddler, and, you know, and he listens to, to Vaughan Williams and he listens to Percy Grange and he goes, OK. Then he goes back and listens to the original recordings that, that Percy mm. Granger and Vaughan Williams did, yeah. <laughs> those field recordings, and the original musicians singing those in the pubs. And he goes, yeah, I prefer this, actually. And, and yeah. because of that voice, because of that the, the grain of it and uh, yeah and we have to finish Sean unfortunately um, and it's been fascinating talking with you and thanks for reading your, your poems from, from the sound recordist uh, I'm going to order my copy directly after this really looking forward to reading it yeah. and um, just tell us very briefly about any project you've projects you've got at the moment that you that we can we can look out for or listen to well, I'm I'm like everybody, I suppose, just just emerging uh, yeah. from this very strange time we've all been in, and not quite sure where it's all going. Uh, I've I've got, I've I've got a new prose book that I'm I'm working on, uh, which is as always to do with sound. Uh, it's called Wild Track: Listening and the Art of of Memory, mm. and uh, the idea behind it really is is to uh, is to come back to that whole thing of listening, um, and uh, it's it's something that I do with students, and I, I I want to put into into print somehow, which is how do you? I mean, we we're used to recording sound, we're used to listening to sound, but when you think back to people like I don't know Richard Jeffries, mm. Hardy, uh, before the recording device was available the idea of birdsong the natural world the sound of it comes to us through words so they the first recordists were i guess people like the troubadours who wrote down the sounds that they heard around them and they had it when we turn back to those sounds we find that they are remarkably exact descriptions of sound now i bet because we're used to switching on a, a digital recorder and, and recording these things, which is great, uh, but it's it's not so easy to write down the sound. And if you try to write the sound, write, write your f the sound, you find yourself writing how it made you feel, mm. uh, your response to it, all these kind of things. Uh, I made a program some years ago about the German sound recordist Ludwig Koch. Yes. And, and Koch was amazing because he was a sound recorder, lugging huge great tape recorders around to remote Scottish islands and goodness knows where. But what was great about Koch, and I, I grew up listening to him on the radio. Uh, he used to do broadcasts on Children's Hour and things like that. And you'd hear his recordings, but you'd also hear his reflections on them. So, you know, you'd hear a recording he made of grey seals in a, in a cave in some remote Scottish Hebridean Island, uh, but you would hear his reflections on it. I remember he referred to 
to these sounds and he said because I can hear these strange sounds of these seals echoing in the cave while I know it's seals to me in my mind it's the ghosts of mermaids or lost sailors echoing in the deep and this you know he as a child you can imagine that oh my goodness um so but he was on the cusp really he was at once recording the actuality but reflecting on what its sound made him feel uh, and so that's really what I'm, I'm working on now is is the idea that we can heighten our ability to listen actively by reflecting on it not just recording it but record trying to record it in words and put down how it makes you feel um, so that's that's my latest uh, obsession well <laughs> It's a very, very healthy obsession, I would say. <laughs> but um, Sean, finally, you, uh, you you chose a piece of music to finish off with Bill Evans. So tell us briefly about that, and then we'll play it. Right. Well, this is a piece called "Peace, Peace," which is an improvisation that Bill Evans did quite early in his career. I think I think it comes from an album called "Everyone Digs Bill Evans," um, and I love Bill Evans' piano. I, I love jazz. That's uh, for, for a start. Uh, and Bill Evans is just a poet of, of jazz piano, really. Um, and I just always listen to Bill Evans when I'm in a traffic jam or, or wherever. When the world becomes gridlocked, Bill Evans is the antidote. And um, and, and I know you love this piece, too. Yeah. Uh, and, and Peace, Peace is a sort of summation of that. It's, it's a meditation. Uh, it, it's where you can feel your blood pressure go down. You can feel your pulse rate slow as you listen to it and it's a it is a meditation it's also an exercise in sound because you can hear the natural world creeping in birdsong so forth so it, it seems to me uh, a piece that's that sums up a, really a lot of what we've been talking about today <laughs> 